Good morning. It's, uh, it's so wonderful to be here with you today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about trust. How do we measure trust? We all have our particular rubrics, um, but fortunately, we also have uh, Twitter who can assist us in this assessment. Um, a, a couple of years ago, they did a remake of the movie It. It's almost Halloween, so this is why I reference the creepy clown movie. But someone posted on Twitter um, a picture of Pennywise, the creepy clown from the movie, uh, in the sewer with his head popped out. Um, and the, the, the tweet said, what would get you to go down into the sewer with Pennywise? Well, the tweet went viral, and the responses were quite interesting. Twitter um, does not disappoint. So what would get you to go down into the sewer with the creepy clown? Well, the number one answer was, I'll pay off your tuition. <laughs> right? I think that's felt here. Um, other interesting answers are uh, things like Chick-fil-A's open on Sunday down here. Uh, Beyonce is down here. Um, I got Popeye's $5 box. Interesting, but you know, it seems like a low bar for a creepy clown. Um, you can eat gluten. Uh, the Kardashian family never had a TV show down here and they all work real jobs. <laughs> it's a little salty, I know. But then some of the answers get a little bit more sobering. I'll make your student loan debt disappear. You can use your food stamps for hot food. I will be loving and supportive and give you all the attention you need. We all have our metrics for trust. We all have our way of assessing what we will put our trust in. Whether we have taken time to consider what those are or how they operate, we are on a daily basis operating in this trust metric. And what I find interesting about this is when we think about the idea of trusting God, we can probably all assent to the idea that God is by far the most trustworthy being in all of time and existence. And yet, I know for myself and for most everyone I know, we struggle during the duration of our lives to trust God. Why do we fail to trust God? Well, there are a number of possible solutions. You might resonate with some of these. I know I do. Um, sometimes we think that God is holding out on us. Right? This is a lie we've told ourselves since the garden, that God is holding out on us, that God is withholding, and so therefore it is up to us to make things happen for ourselves. We might think, well, others have broken trust, so why wouldn't God? Sometimes we're not sure if God cares about the things that we care about. And sometimes, in the deep, scary places we don't always admit to, some of us truly believe that it's all up to us, that we're all alone, and that it's up to us to make anything happen. Trust is a major theme in this passage that we just heard. It is playing out in three people, three people who all have encounters with God, who all receive promises from God, and who all respond differently. We have Sarah and Abram, who in this particular story are the ones with the greatest positions of power and resources and wealth. But they've received this promise of God, they are struggling. They are struggling to trust that God will fulfill his promise. And in that struggle to trust God, they go to their own resources and options to kind of help force God's promise. This is a message for all of us as we 
realize that those of us sitting in this room who have access to the things we do in higher education, in the sense of the globe, we are the 1%. We are people of means, people of resources, and friends just know that when people of means, like Sarah and Abram in the story, put trust in their own resources in order to force God's promise, the results are almost always exploitive. And in this case, we see this. So now their taking over of the results becomes a domino effect of sin. And then we have Hagar. She's in a very different position. She's Egyptian. She's a slave. She's cut off from her people and her land. She's essentially property. On a whim, she can be given in marriage to the master of the house and made a surrogate. And because of this, we know that she has no agency. Because of this, we know that she is not an active agent in these decisions. Now, this form of surrogacy that we see happening in this story is actually not uncommon to the culture in which they lived. And so we can understand that at best, Hagar might have potentially been a willing adherent to this plan in this culture. At worst, it is rape. So she's in this situation. And then she finds herself being blamed for the very situation that she had no agency in determining herself in. So what does she do? She begins to despair and ultimately goes to destructive actions. When we see Hagar fleeing into the wilderness, that is our cue about how bad things are at home, right? At this point in time, there was no running off to join the circus. There was nowhere to go. If you didn't have the community, you would almost surely die, especially if you are a foreigner, if you are a female, if you have no resources. And yet she chooses this option. And by choosing this option, we are alerted to just how bad it is when she's given the choice of staying in the situation she is in or certain death, she flees. Now, Going back to Sarai and Abram, we can't throw too many stones, right? Because they're very much like us, right? We often use our circumstances to measure God's trustworthiness. And when we have other things we can trust in, we often do. But oftentimes, sin results from misplacing our trust for God into these functional saviors that we have at the ready. But in Hagar's situation, her trusting of God fits into a different paradigm. First of all, this was not her God. She is not a Hebrew. She is an Egyptian. She comes from a different background, a different way of worship. She couldn't look at this through the lens of her circumstances or how much she would trust God because her circumstances and her options were dire. If we were to look at the people in this story, best positioned to assess God's trustworthiness on circumstances alone, Hagar is out of luck. So this raises a big question for me. Why did she go back? Why did she go back? She's out in the wilderness. She's made her choice. Everything makes sense. We've seen the order of events. Something happens. Verses 7 through 14, she has an encounter with an angel of the Lord. And a couple things happen here, some things that are maybe easy for us to miss but are worth noting. First of all, he calls her by her name. If you'll notice, it's the first person in this narrative that does. Calls her by her name. 
names her situation, listens to her affliction, then prophesies about her and her son. He confirms that she is pregnant, confirms that she will have a son, that she will be named Ishmael, which means God hears. And then something happens that doesn't happen anywhere else in the narrative of scripture to a female. Her descendants, her seed are blessed. We see this promise. We see this promise given to Abraham. We see this promise given to others, but the only time it is given to a female singularly without this other attachment to any other person, the promise is given to her. It's quite remarkable. And then in return, Hagar does something that hasn't happened in the narrative of scripture up to this point. She names God. God who sees me, or God I have seen. Honestly, the, for, for those of you who are Hebrew scholars out here, you're much more versed in this than I am. It's been a long time since I had Hebrew. Um, but it can go either way. God who sees me, or God I have seen. And I really kind of love that it can go either way because it, it opens us to the possibility that it actually is both. And then when she names the well, that translation is well of the living one who sees me. All of these things happen. She encounters the living God. But still, even with all of these miraculous things that happen, this incredible encounter in the wilderness, she goes back. Friends, I struggle with this. This is an insane amount of trust. Some that I don't know that I have or if I would have been as obedient. I gave a list of reasons why we often don't trust God, but I'd like to offer one that I think covers them all. Friends, I believe that we often don't trust God because we don't know God. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life with no sense of direction. You say, but Aaron, we are seminarians. We are professors and students. We spend all of our time in the study of God, truly. But we also feel this, right? We gamble on functional saviors and things that feel like they might give us some control because in truth, friends, there are so many other things in this world that feel more knowable than God. But I believe this is why a lot of us actually make the choice to go into ministry. There's a hunger. There's a thirst. We want to know God. We want to be in God's presence. We seek to have something real and we go to these classes and we learn and in many cases we do experience this living God. Other times our academic efforts can feel empty, a little futile, because friends no matter how many times we read through our Bible or take seminary courses we are never fully unencumbered from our false identities. See trusting is indelibly tied to knowing and knowing springs from identity. 
David Seatron and Chris Kiesling say, we are called to trust a God we cannot see and often do not understand, which is infinitely more difficult to do when we are content with what we already know about him or if our understanding of his character is faulty and superficial. See, friends, we live in a world of competing narratives about who we are and about who God is. We project our own fractured identities onto God. We seek our identity in our circumstances, and we use these to measure the trustworthiness of God. Hagar has one advantage in this story. She's been emptied. She has no wreckage to cling to. She's in danger of sinking down to the depths. And because of that clarity, she is able to see. She's able to see the God right in front of her, a God that she didn't know any other way. In her book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, Carolyn Custis James says, um, it is never enough to know about God in our heads. We must know him in our hearts. And this happens when we are forced to trust God in perplexing circumstances. But here's what I love about what happens with Hagar. She doesn't just get a lifeline. She gets the living God. A God unlike any other she has learned of, a personal God who finds her, calls her, orders and blesses her life, a God who wishes to know and be known, to see and be seen. Have you ever thought about how astounding this is? This, this familiarity, this intimacy, it is, it's almost unnerving the way we worship God in Christianity. Our friends in other religions are, 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 are very concerned about the sort of familial and intimate language that we use to talk about God. The idea that God, the creator of the universe, the order of all things, wants to know and be known, see and be seen. It is wild. And Hagar shows us the effect it has on a person. And even though, friends, we can say that we are probably in a much better position than Hagar, I mean, we have more resources, we're much better educated, we have better theology. I mean, I'll bet Hagar could not write a paper on superlapsarianism running on a box of Skittles and a cup of coffee, amen? Right? We have so much more than her. And yet we struggle to trust God, and this incriminates our false identities and ideas about God. But there's good news, friends. And we see it at work, both here in the text, as well as in our lives today. Two things. Knowing often comes through our wounds and not despite them. And there are things that are true, that are still true in the dark. I love the more obscure Narnia Chronicles, like a horse and his boy. Thank God they never made a movie out of it. It's the story of Shasta and he's foreigner in a strange land and he's trying to get back to Narnia where he's from and in the course of this he has a very rough time and we find him later in the story he's finally in Narnia he is finally connected with the king to deliver an urgent message but they put him on this little slow donkey and as the 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 party moves on he is left behind and he finds himself in a place he has no idea where he is on a very slow donkey all alone in the pitch black of dark and he's feeling very sorry for himself and in that moment, he realizes that there's someone else there with him. And when he realizes that it's a lion, 
It terrifies him. See, he's had very bad luck with lions the whole time in his trip. He's encountered them at different points and have run for their lives, fearful of these encounters. And all of a sudden, of course, just a top off several bad weeks, there he is all alone on this donkey in the dark with a lion. But the lion speaks to him and asks him why he's afraid. And Shasta proceeds to tell him the very bad luck he's had with lions. And the lion says this, those were not lions, there was only one lion. I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for that last mile so they would reach the king in time. And I was the lion you did not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to a shore where a man sat, wakefully at midnight, to receive you. One lion. And of course, this lion is Aslan. And he relays to him all the parts of the story that he's been a part of. See, Shasta had this idea, but he didn't really know. And so he couldn't trust. But something occurred to him that very next day, he ends up on that exact same trail, but now in the daylight. And he noticed that on that trail that he was on with that donkey, he was actually up against the sheer drop-off of a cliff face and that the position the lion was in when he was walking with him was between him and the drop-off. So the whole time Aslan was walking with him in the dark, he was guiding him away from that cliff, from that cliff face. It's often hard to really know God. We do our best for sure. After all, we're in seminary. But friends, our trust is not the measure by which Christ makes himself known. Thanks be to God. And even when our perceptions are faulty, even when all has gone wrong and we're feeling very sorry for ourselves, he will stay between us and that cliff face. Like Hagar, we can obey. Like Hagar, we can, we can come <laughs> without any special knowledge or any perfect idea that enables us to unlock all the secrets of God, and yet we can, we can trust and be in communion with this God, despite all things. See, he gives us the gift of his spirit even when we are not trustworthy, when we still rely on functional saviors instead of him. His knowing is not about us finding him, he finds us in the wilderness, in injustices, when we are alone, when we have spent our whole lives serving other gods. And even if our circumstances do not change, Christ in us, the hope of glory, promises to change us and show us our true identity in Christ so that like our sister Hagar, and even Sarah and Abram, and like the gospel promises, in Christ we are free, we are full, we are complete, lacking nothing for life and godliness. And with our trembling trust, we cast our weakness on a God who is still true in the dark. And we worship. Not because we can co-sign every word that we sing. I give you everything. Maybe. Probably not. 
at least for myself anyway. But we sing anyway. We worship anyway because worship is transformative because we have to come somewhere where we believe but help our unbelief. So for a moment today here in this chapel, I hope you remember that despite where you are, despite your struggles to trust and know God, friends, God is with us. And we can enter back into worship knowing that these practices and these communities and this worship is transforming us day after day to remember who we already are in Christ because of the promises of the gospel through his son. So let's worship anyway. Let's sing together. Let's allow the Lord to work in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.